From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Labor Department's asking vendors about training that violates a White House executive order on diversity and inclusion training. The agency requests information from contractors about, quote, workplace trainings involving prohibited race or sex stereotyping or scapegoating. Federal News Network reports the deadline for comments and responses is December 1st. The Navy's grounded non-deployed planes in its aviation fleet tonight after two accidents last week. The commander of Naval Air Forces, Vice Admiral Kenneth Whitesell, ordered the grounding after a T-6B Texan II crash Friday that killed a sailor and a Coast Guardsman and an F-18E Super Hornet crash last Tuesday. The pilot ejected safely from the F-18. USNI News reports Admiral Whitesell ordered the sta uh, safety stand down yesterday. The latest delay in the F-35 program will keep the plane from full rate production until sometime next year. Jessica Maxwell of the Office of Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, Ellen Lord, says the delay is because of simulation tests the plane has to pass. Defense News reports Maxwell didn't indicate when next year the tests will happen. One of President Trump's new executive orders on diversity and inclusion training sets a tight deadline for implementation. The new rule will go into effect November 21st. Right now, it doesn't include a window of time for contractor comments. Joe Jordan is CEO at ActaParo, former administrator of federal procurement policy. I guess the question right now, it seems to me, that contractors have, Joe, is what are the questions that we have to answer as far as the expectations that uh, the government has? Is that a fair read? Yeah, that, that is a fair read, Francis, and thanks for having me. Um, you know, contractors are... Uh, largely confused and surprised by this. The fact that we're now hearing, um, you know, the administration is going to look to issue a far deviation, meaning, hey, the rulemaking process, regular order is going to take too long. So we're just going to kind of skip to the end and say, here's what the uh, active and in effect regulations are going to be until we digest those comments and maybe make edits down the road. I mean, these are pretty unprecedented steps for this type of executive order. There are certainly times where fast tracking rulemaking is appropriate. But let me give you a quick example. You know, the, I was trying to think of when uh, a far deviation was issued when I was at OFPP. And one of the examples that popped to mind, really the only one that first popped to mind was uh, DOD and NASA and others wanted to do more price competition off of GSA schedule and other multiple award IDIQs and uh, GSA defending its equities on the FAR Council said, hold on, we wanna take the usual year plus long process to run a, a rulemaking and DOD, NASA and others said, nope, you know, sure we could do that process. But in the meantime, we're telling our people to compete these orders, to compete these tasks, try to get better pricing um, and not just accept what was uh, kind of listed on the contract. That makes sense. That is clearly you know something that benefits the american people but this racist dog whistle is not something that needs to be fast-tracked and is leaving many vendors confused and frustrated um there's no doubt in my mind then you've made it clear what your opinion is on the executive order mechanically how will this work if there is a far deviation issued does that mean that each contract will not have to be modified what do contractors or should contractors expect 
in that respect, Joe? We'll have to see that from uh, what comes out of uh, the FAR Council and agencies in terms of implementation. Is it typically these sorts of things are not retroactive? You don't have to go back and uh, modify existing contracts. Sometimes uh, as each uh, option year is exercised, you would add in the clause, but, but typically this would be forward-looking. And this is also something that's less about a vendor's performance on an individual contract and more about how the vendor conducts its internal business and HR practices. So either way, once it's final, every contractor is going to be looking, how do we do diversity inclusion training? Is there anything we do that would overtly or perhaps inadvertently trip the uh, you know forbidden practices in this executive order and the subsequent regulations? And, and a lot of people ask me, well, but how does anybody even find out, right? Well, you know, the uh, Department of Labor's OFCCP, the Office of Federal Contractor Compliance Policy, has already issued its kind of hotline saying, hey, if you are aware of any contractors who are uh, delivering these trainings or have these policies, uh, please call this number and let us know anonymously. Um, so again, that creates fear and confusion among the contractor uh, workforce and, and ownership. So to the point of that confusion, when I read the RFI, I, it didn't sound to me like the, like the government knows what it's asking for exactly. It's basically saying to the vendors, what are you doing? And it strikes me the time that's involved to do a turnaround on this this may become over, overcome by events, Joe. I think that's fair, Francis. Um, you know, we are a week out from a special day in uh, American government and politics, of course. And so I don't think that um, it was any surprise to see the administration want to fast track this and show it really cares about it and wants it implemented before January, whatever the electoral results might be. Um, but that's not typically why uh, procurement policies, be they regulations derived from an act of Congress or from an executive order, are fast-tracked. It's usually on that kind of faster timeline because there's an urgent and compelling need to promote economy and efficiency in the acquisition system due to the stipulations outlined in this act of Congress or executive order. Doesn't seem to be the case here. And like you said, neither the executive order nor the OFCCP RFI outlines a, a clear kind of urgent and compelling reason that the economy and efficiency of the procurement process is being harmed currently by these practices, while I acknowledge there's disagreement on, on some of the specifics um, underlying those. And so um, you're right. I, I don't know if it will you know, reasonably be implemented and enforceable um, by January should things go one way instead of another. But it's just unhelpful to have confusion uh, in, in the acquisition system. And so um, if this was a policy that an administration duly elected wanted to push, you would expect it to go through a very thorough comment, public comment and review period um, and come out the other side with not just, you know, contractors might not like it, might not, you know, uh, remove the confusion, but at least they would understand, okay, here are the things I need to do versus uh, a far deviation, which can um, sometimes sneak up on them. 20 seconds, Joe. What if I'm a vendor and I do nothing? Well, um, while I can't and wouldn't give you that advice, <laughs> I think continuing to promote diversity inclusion training within your 
uh, American business, be it a contractor or otherwise, is probably a good idea. And absent some clear uh, outline of what exactly is wrong to do and what exactly the penalties are, I understand why you might do nothing, Francis. Joe Jordan, thank you very much. Up next, the biggest defense acquisition moves of the year. Straight ahead on Government Matters, matching the trends with the national defense strategy. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Back total defense contract spending is up to $381.2 billion in fiscal year 2019. Spending is up 4%, but it's growing at a slower rate than it was before. Andrew Hunter is senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. This analysis that you and your team have done of defense contract spending is really insightful. What's your biggest takeaway? What do you think the trends here are that people should pay attention to? Well, two things really stood out for us. First was that research and development is finally growing fiscal year 19 for the first time really since the recovery started in 2015, which is good news. But uh, it's uh, only growing in part. It's really growing most in the area of prototyping. And we don't see the same growth in, uh, in system de design and development where systems really are brought uh, into being and, and brought towards fielding. But what we also see is a huge explosion in uh, other transaction authority agreements, OTAs. Uh, and that in some cases appears to be truly replacing the typical R&D approach. What's your take on what that means for the future of, of developments of big systems? Is that primarily where you're seeing the OTAs? And what does that say about the way that people will think about developing these systems moving forward? Well, there's definitely a mix. So as of yet, we don't see a lot of OTAs that are delivering fielded systems. Uh, it's more in the early prototyping phase and in the component development phase. But the big question we have is how are these prototypes going to make it into becoming fielded systems? Uh, and it may be that uh, the, that they stay as OTAs. If you look, for example, in the Future Vertical Lift program, they're doing a second round of prototyping under OTAs. Uh, and it's possible that the Army would find itself in a position to procure those aircraft uh, when they've done one more procurement phase. It's also possible that they'll feel a need to do uh, an engineering manufacturing development phase, a short one, a more traditional uh, a more traditional approach to getting ready for production. And that's one of the big question marks we have right now. One of the passages in your work that stood out to me is this one. The data show mixed trends for the platform portfolios emphasized in the national defense strategy, air and missile defense, nuclear space, cyberspace, and C4ISR. Is it, is it wrong for me to have thought that that spending would have increased more quickly to be um, kind of compatible with the NDS? Well, that was our expectation as well, Francis, and that's why we looked. Uh, and, uh, and it's starting to become more true now, but in the early years of the recovery, the growth was almost entirely in aircraft. Uh, and the aircraft that were being purchased uh, were really aircraft that were designed some, some time ago, uh, the F-35. Uh, even now we have F-15s that are in procurement. So uh, you're not seeing kind of that push towards the next generation of systems uh, until really in, in FY19, you start to see some of the other portfolios, uh, you know, electronics, communications, space, starting to grow more robustly. 
so it's taken some time for the national defense strategy to really translate into resource allocation that we can observe. Has it taken a longer period of time, though, than one should think is reasonable, given the turn cycles, budget cycles, and procurement cycles in the department? Well, yeah, that's a that's an insightful question because it does take time for change to happen in the Department of Defense. It doesn't happen overnight, no matter how good one's intentions are, uh, and that's fair. You know, it, I think two years is not, uh, sadly, is not unreasonable of an expectation for how long a, a real change in resourcing can can take to be put into place. The other point to make, of course, is that uh, you know the department was very focused on what they saw as a readiness crisis uh, in the uh, initial years of, of the recovery, uh, a crisis caused, in my view, by sequestration. So, uh, you know, that, that, that was a demand for resources that could not be ignored. Another item that I saw in your work that seems to fit with the conversations that I've been having, at least with defense leaders recently, is this one. Electronics, comms, and sensors increasing its growth 5% in fiscal 19. That's a reflection, it strikes me, of the work that the department's trying to do, especially on, on initiatives like JADC2. Is that right? I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it's been building over time. So 5% doesn't knock your socks off, but it's been steady. It's been about 5% a year. Uh, and that means that the growth in electronics uh, over five years has been pretty substantial. Uh, and other other portfolios have really kind of risen and fallen in a much more uh, jagged fashion. I mentioned that aircraft, you know, took off when the recovery started. They then stalled out. Uh, and so aircraft as a portfolio are doing better overall than, uh, again, total contract obligations. Uh, but it, they've dramatically slowed down in the last couple of years. And, you know, we, we, we do have to wonder with some of these portfolios and with contract obligations uh, overall, are we at a peak? You know, are we are we now seeing, you know, are we going to see it go down in the next several years? And that's one concern I have. We're at a historically high level uh, of uh, contract obligations to the Department of Defense's budget, and we're expecting budgets to flatten out, uh, which paints a little bit of a concerning picture for the future. Uh, aircraft uh, procurement took off and stalled out. I see what you did there, Andrew. Nicely done. Um, another big bump that I see here is space systems spending up 20% in fiscal 19. That's not just a reflection of Space Force, is it, either? No, I, I think it's a much broader trend. And, and it's fair to note as well that uh, the data that we're looking at are unclassified data. And we know with space that there's a fair amount of classified uh, expenditures that happen. So the, the growth in space by all uh, anecdotal accounts that I've heard is actually even far more robust than what we're able to show on our data and maybe goes back a little longer in our data. Uh, it's been puzzling to us that space has been a bit stagnant in our data for some years, but, but FY19, we finally saw the breakthrough. Uh, 30 seconds left. Is that a trend that you expect to continue moving forward in space? I think so. I mean, I think with what's on tap, you know, you can kind of predict a little bit where things are going to head by, by looking at the program structure uh, and where money is flowing and likely to flow. Uh, and I think we are going to continue to see growth in space uh, contract obligations. Andrew Hunter, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back. Thank you, Francis. Up next, staying sane in the workplace during a pandemic. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what you can do to support your employees' mental health. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Mental health system, uh, symptoms are increasing since the beginning of the coronavirus, according to the Centers 
for disease control. About 41% of adults report struggling with mental health or substance abuse issues in June. Mallory Barg Bowman is Research Director of Finance Process Excellence at Gartner. Mallory, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. When I think about your areas of expertise and the things that you and I have talked about over the years, this is not something that I would think would fit into your typical portfolio. No disrespect intended. Why is this something that's important to you? Sure, um, and no disrespect taken. Thanks for having me, Francis. So, you know, what you and I have talked about a lot is how can we make the workforce as productive and, you know, engaged as possible. And one of the things that we've always talked about is change management. That is still absolutely important. But Gartner found that in addition to the large changes that we experience, you know, the big changes that we have a whole change management plan in place for, employees really are also contending with small changes during their day. And those small changes have about two times the effect of those big changes. So leaders, managers, peers really need tools in their toolbox to help employees sustain their mental energy through all of those small, stressful changes that are happening in their day-to-day -day life. Mallory, the overwhelming sentiment that I hear from people as we do this remote environment, like you and I did before we came on the air, we have a little chat, people are just exhausted. This is wearing people down, being on virtual calls all the time, kids home, all of these things. What does that do for an employee's willingness, susceptibility to be open to the kinds of change management issues you just described? Yeah, it's a great question, Francis. You know, we have seen in our research that employees, you know, they care about their work. They want to do a good job. And in early days when there's lots of stress, lots of change, you know, in some cases, they're really engaged by it. They really want to do a good job. You know, I interview a lot of controllers in my work. We saw that for the first quarter close at the end of March, which was right as things were really, you know, changing at a rapid pace. They closed the books in some cases faster than they expected. Their teams were really fully engaged. But the truth is people can't sustain that level of change, that level of uncertainty for forever. There really is a breaking point and managers need to be able to contend with supporting their employees during times of change in order to help sustain and build that mental energy. I know that mental wellness is something that private sector companies are thinking about an awful lot. What are they good at that would apply in agencies and what are they doing that maybe wouldn't apply in a public sector environment? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we've always said about federal agencies, we're not gonna put ping pong tables and that kind of thing in. And, and the truth is that's not what the private sector is thinking about either. They're really getting back to basics, making sure that they're listening to employees. We talked to two companies in particular that really gave their managers a, a simple form to keep track of their employees' mental energy. So when people are meeting with their supervisees every week, really taking note of how does their stress level seem where is that person putting their discretionary effort, you know, and how are they spending their time? Is it taking longer than it has in the past to get that work done? And then coming up with an escalation plan that if you see that employee several weeks in a row is really down, it's taking them longer to get their work done. Maybe they're 
really saying that they're burnt out, coming up with a plan to address it. Maybe it involves, you know, redistributing the workload or even just letting that employee know that you see that they're under a time of stress. Just having a plan and making sure that you're listening really makes a difference. That, that punch list may be the answer to my next question, but I'll ask it anyway, Mallory. What are the leading indicators that people should be looking for in their employees to judge, to try to get ahead of the curve and help somebody before they really need it? Yeah, that's exactly right. And as you and I have talked about before, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey is really an important indicator. It comes every year. But a lot of time with employee feedback surveys, by the time those results come out, it's going to be too late. So you do want regular monitoring of employee behaviors, whether it's, again, the discretionary effort, where they're putting their time, how their morale, how their stress level seems. Those are really things that supervisors and peers, frankly, can be keeping track of for one another. Um, 30 seconds left. What will you watch moving forward in the federal government space to see how agencies are doing at this issue? Sure. We're about to have a large presidential transition, regardless of who wins the election. There are 4,000 political appointees who, by and large, have a turnover of 18 months. That is a tremendous amount of change for federal employees. What I will be watching for is the extent to which federal managers are equipped and ready to support their workforce through those changes. Mallory, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back on. Thank you. Great to be here. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. You can get Government Matters as an audio podcast now. You get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and tune in every day. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.